0: This is That Means Nothing to Me, a podcast about incredibly specific accomplishments. My name is Trey Taylor. I'm your host. Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome back if you listened to the first episode, uh, and welcome uh, if you didn't, uh, although you totally should, because it's really awesome and I'm really proud of it. Uh, today's episode is a little bit different, I only have one guest instead of two, like the format of last time, and that's for a very specific reason, you'll find out when we get there, so without further ado...
1: My name is Mackenzie Bland. I am currently working as a marketing specialist at a software company. However, my goal is to get my PhD and become a professor.
0: What are you gonna be a professor of?
1: So, because my discipline is marketing, I'll be basically a marketing professor in whatever classes the college I'll be teaching at has open. (laughs) You kind of, as a professor, you get assigned uh, to teach certain classes by the department so you don't really get to pick what you want to do.
0: That's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Unless you're like tenured, unless you're really high up there, you kind of just get what you're given.
0: I actually didn't know that. We're we're not even in the full interview yet.
1: I might be about to blow your mind with how academia
0: works. Okay, cool.
1: I'm proud of being able to research and publish my very own thesis.
0: What was your title when you published it?
1: Color and Color Placement Effects on Purchase Intention of Loot Boxes in Video Games. Interesting. Yes, it's very, very niche.
0: Incredible. (laughs) Incredible. A loot box in video games is, just in case you don't know, a box you can buy from the game, which is an in-game purchase that has random cosmetics, or items, or things that make your character look different from other characters. Uh, Recently in the news, they've been kind of a hot-button issue because of the association of gambling with loot boxes, and the fact that they're available to everyone, regardless of age, regardless of game that they're playing. What exactly about loot boxes were you studying?
1: So, I'm specifically talking about the button that you press when you make the purchase usually gold and purple and orange and blue those are all um, signifiers of the rarities of the objects that you'll get however i'm specifically talking about the actual literal like rectangular button it's usually a rectangle sometimes it's a circle that says purchase or unlock box or whatever it may be but that actual button is called a call to action button or a conversion button But that button itself is highly studied because that color can uh, trigger a lot of different things in people, and it's very unconscious. We don't realize that we're processing that color, but it actually makes us do things. Basically, I had to do a lot of background research Mm -hmm. to get to where I got to. The whole thing, is that loot boxes are a form of gambling. And that's why I can make the the theories that I made.
0: I know that there were a lot of legislation changes around Mm -hmm. the specific verbiage that they were allowed to use. Mm -hmm. And so for instance, I mean, in my experience, I know Overwatch has a, they have a little blurb right above the button where you purchase loot boxes, where it says um, all cosmetics are earnable in game, Cosmetics do not affect gameplay all, all kinds of stuff like that and legally they have to put that there
1: It was mostly concerned with how much money they have made from all of their microtransactions in general There was some statistic like Blizzard has made over 14 billion dollars in microtransaction sales since something like 2016 yeah, and that was published in the beginning of 2019, so it ended in 2018. So in two years, they made $14 billion.
0: That's unreal. (laughs) Yeah. What made you go with loot boxes as a thesis topic?
1: The very first thing that I knew I wanted to do was sensory marketing. Sensory marketing, sensory consumer behavior is all of the research that goes into a certain smell that you come into a store and makes you want to buy something, or maybe the layout of a grocery store, or the a certain like sample or a certain sound that you hear when something is played to, like when an ad is shown and you hear a jingle or something, that's also sensory marketing. So I'm really into sensory consumer behavior. It's always been something I'm interested in because of my synesthesia and I kind of just realized oh i can do research on this and at my level right now i kind of don't have a lot of resources to be able to do things with smell or taste or touch because those require very specific machinery and i didn't obviously get funded for this so i had to pick something that i could do over a computer screen so that kind of left me with audio or visual and then I kind of said, okay, well, I'll do visual. I'll do color because that's probably the easiest thing I could do. And I can really get into the weeds with the specific theories. And from there, I just started spitballing. And originally I wanted to look at mobile games, but there wasn't a lot of other research on that. A lot wasn't a lot of good starting places to jump off of. And I just kind of Googled like loot box color one day not thinking anything of it. And all of those articles that you were talking about earlier for the legislation of loot boxes, those all showed up and those all showed up with actual documented prior research where researchers show that loot boxes are akin to gambling. And I was like, this is it. And kind of jumping off from there, I got into the vein of gambling in color. So there's a lot of research that basically says that red, when people are primed with the color red, they are in in specific betting situations. They're more likely to bet more frequently and bet higher amounts when they're primed with the color red. There's a lot of different studies that add in music and mood lighting instead of the chips that they're using or, or things like that. And pretty much all of them, even if it's not statistically significant, The data shows a trend in that direction of Red being responsible for people just having riskier behavior. And so I was like, okay, maybe this can work with loot boxes. If loot boxes are so like gambling, then those same principles should apply to loot boxes in video games.
0: And has that been done before? Like, has anybody really done the research you're doing?
1: Nope. Nope. I am the very first person to publish something about color in loot boxes and kind of the, the color placement as well. And I'll talk about that as well. Um, but a lot of times what we don't realize is that all of these companies, Blizzard, Riot, etc., they all have their own marketing R&D teams they have PhDs who are working for them that do all of that research in house. So it never gets published because that is their proprietary information. And they don't want to share that with any of their competitors. They don't want the rest of the world to see what they're doing. And so what I did was basically kind of the first time comparing all of those variables at the same time for the world to see.
0: Right. Because it, it, it makes, total sense that they would do essentially the same research you're doing, mm-hmm. but not necessarily want the results to be publicly available yeah. or widely known.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Once you, once you kind of decided on what it was you wanted to write this thesis on, like how, how did you start? Like what was the first step? I mean, cause if, if this has literally never been researched before, how how did you really decide, like, what information was important and what wasn't? What was the what was the jumping off point into this?
1: So that's a really good question because that's what every single person who does research has to ask themselves. And the first step in writing a thesis is gathering as much information as you can that's already been published. Um, it's the literature review is what it's called in the thesis. And... I kind of looked at everything that was done about colors. What color associations have been covered in humanity before? God, there's so many of them. There's so much, there's so much research on just color and emotional associations. Cool, lots of different theories about why colors do certain things to us. Uh, One of the main theories about red is that, uh, there's a few different actually that I use, but one of them is that it physically stimulates us, is that we see the color red and our heart rate increases, our um, central nervous system picks up and kind of gets stimulated and goes into overdrive. But there's another theory that says that when we see red, we associate with our kind of cultural contextual clues, is that we see red and we say aggressiveness, dominance, like Ooh, that thing is mine. It leads me to greater desire. That, those kinds of things. Um, so once I kind of got the color background, I was then able to jump into color and gambling specifically. And then from there, the other twist about my research is the color placement. So not only am I looking at red versus blue versus gray as a control, I'm looking at where it's placed. So my whole thing is that I made kind of sample fake paywall screens for a loot box and they're very simple. I made it literally in PowerPoint and it just says, has a picture of a loot box, says all of the items, all of the rarities, uh, all the odds to unlock those rarities. Mm -hmm. And then has a button, a rectangular button that says unlock box now. And in those stimuli, I either colored the background or I colored the button. And that was the color placement part. So at the same time that I was looking at red specifically to increase people's bedding, I was also looking at where the color red was placed. Because if it's anywhere on the screen that you see red that does that, then you could... Put red anywhere around the page and that would make people want to buy it, right? But if it's only the red in the purchase button where you physically click, where you're forced to interact with the actual game, then that means that, oh, that button itself should be red and there should be contrast and that is the only place that red should be placed on the page. So that was That's actually the kind of central point, the very specific point of my thesis. I also had a thesis chair who is a lovely person named Dr. David Luna, and he basically guided me through the whole process of saying, okay, get all your background research and then start coming up with um, research designs. And that's when I designed the simuli and the PowerPoint and all that kind of stuff and then I had to design the survey and come up with questions to ask people and that was a whole case in and of itself like oh my god how do I how do I get the results that I want to like come out like how can I see whether this is working or not and I had to test that a bunch of different times because at first I was using the word would you purchase this loot box instead of would you unlock this loot box? And just that one phrase change completely changed my results. Yeah,
0: yeah, that makes sense. Because then you're not thinking about it in like a monetary value. You're thinking about like, oh yeah, I want whatever loot that is. Well,
1: so I actually set up the um, scenario that everybody saw. The scenario was that I told everybody in the scenario to imagine that they were playing a game that they like and enjoy. And in this game, the producers had given everybody's accounts 100 free gold and 100 gold in this hypothetical game is enough to buy a loot box. So everybody has the money in their accounts already. So I didn't want people to focus on necessarily them actually being the ones to purchase it and have to pay for it in that kind of headspace but rather just to focus on the money's already in your account which is ha- actually how it happens in yeah, your yeah, life yeah. the money's actually already in your account and to focus on opening that specific loot box
0: what kind of numbers did you get on that survey how many like how many people did you actually survey
1: so ucf is actually really cool because we have our own marketing research lab in the college of business and In a single day, we can get about 350 responses to our surveys. So it allowed me to get a high, high volume of respondents, which was awesome because that meant that my data was all going to be, whatever the results were, they were going to be statistically sound.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah. And
1: um, that was super cool just to kind of wake up one day and see that my survey had 350 responses i kind of freaked out um but overall i definitely had probably over a thousand people take the
0: that's insane that's awesome
1: yeah it's kind of crazy when you think about like i don't know if you've ever taken a survey before either if it's just for like a a follow-up survey after you've gotten like a service or a good or a product or something or an actual like research survey but your answer actually really matters. It's kind of kind of cool to see it come into into play.
0: As a published researcher, what advice would you have for somebody that's sitting where you were when you first had this idea to start looking into loot boxes when you were first deciding on what you wanted to actually write your thesis on? What advice would you have for somebody that's just starting that process? What do you wish somebody had told you?
1: I think the biggest thing is that it doesn't have to be perfect. Research doesn't lie. Data doesn't lie. And whatever you get, If you're not getting the results that you want to get, that is okay. If you set out to do something and you set out to find research on something and it doesn't turn out the way that you want it to, you can start over, you can tweak, you can come at it from a different angle. There's always stuff that you can be doing and always stuff that you can be researching. It's not already written in stone. That's kind of the point of it is to take something and put it in stone.
0: What happens to your research? After it's, after it's published, after it's out there, do you see any of the companies that you specifically used in your research citing you or using the research or changing some of their practices or anything?
1: So I think that a lot of the companies, again, as I said, already have a lot of that research done. I think that what my research would be used for is for other marketing companies in general who are trying to either make their own video game or make their own microtransaction style um tool to use that but on the other hand it will also be used a lot by activists and lawmakers and people to say "Ooh, they were using a this one technique that's been done by Mackenzie bland before and she showed that this was a technique that can drag people into gambling in their loot boxes and that's what i care about is people using it in a way that could make laws happen and protect children and um, all that kind of stuff. The results that I got out of my research, I only got basically like half of what I wanted to get, which is again, okay, it happens. But basically I saw a difference between the control button the gray background with the gray button and the gray background with the red button, which is what I was specifically looking at. My hypothesis stated that there would be a difference between the red button and everything else, but there was only a difference between the red button and the control, not the other blue and the red background with the gray button, like those kinds of things. So I'm proud that I was able to find that one little result that opens the door for me to do more research on it and to, you know, actually simulate a video game environment, to actually make people feel like they're in a game and they see that they have the opportunity to open a loot box and, oh, do they click it? Maybe, because what color is it? That's the kind of thing that I want to do with it in the future, so I'm proud that I've been able to get it started, get it under my belt, and be able to say that I have published my undergraduate thesis.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that was actually my very next question was what's next with Mm. this research? Where, Where do you go with the information you have now? Where do you go next?
1: So, first of all, all of my respondents were business majors at UCF. I didn't narrow it down by people who have played video games before. I didn't narrow it down by people who have purchased loot boxes before. Those are things that I need to focus on going forward in future research is narrowing down that field to people who actually matter in the scope of that research. And then from there I think I'll work on other colors <laughs> and other visual cues to kind of lead people to that button. There's a lot of different theories and a lot of different ways that you can get people's visual attention on a page and so i want to maybe focus on other color patterns and other contrast tools to lead people to that button as well so there's a lot of room for growth and opportunity
0: you're you're essentially engineering the irresistible loot box
1: yes (laughs) trying to (laughs)
0: This next part of the episode you're about to hear is a little bit different, and it's different because we had just finished recording the interview you just listened to, and I remembered something that she had said earlier in the middle of a sentence. I didn't want to interrupt her um, and throw off her train of thought, and that was that Mackenzie had synesthesia, and in the spirit of full disclosure, Mackenzie is my oldest friend in the whole world. I have known her probably over 12 years We have the exact same birthday. I'm 22 minutes older than she is. She hates when I remind her of that. But somehow I had missed this giant part of her life and how she experiences sound and color. And I think it adds so much credibility to the research she's done on color because of her kind of appreciation for handling it and experiencing it differently from other people. So I had a ton of questions about synesthesia itself and she was having to answer them. So that is the second half of the episode. Enjoy. I did not know you had synesthesia. You did it? I did not know that.
1: I have two types of synesthesia. We have
0: never, this has never never come up. We have never talked about this once.
1: Okay, cool. So the first one actually has a name, it's called chromesthesia. I can basically see music. Um, So if I hear polyphonic sections of music, it will trigger colors and shapes to kind of just come up into my consciousness. it's very specific like it's only when there's like polyphonic sections of music those sections are really big in classical music and EDM <laughs> and it can it can happen in in really in any genre don't get me wrong but the big ones are classical and EDM so i just like I don't know. Sometimes I'll listen to a song and just be like, "Ooh, this sounds orange or something." Yeah.
0: Because <laughs> well, I know, like that's such a that's such a running joke. Yeah. With like people who have synesthesia is, oh, like a bus honking is like light blue to me, <laughs> and I, I, it's so weird to think that that's like, that is not a joke. That is actually. How you see, and so is it? Is it more like a visual, like you see the sh- the color and the shape floating in front of you, or it's like
1: no, it's you like, just
0: it pops into mm-hmm. your head.
1: It's like it's the perception of color. That is
0: so weird. Like
1: you can imagine things in your head, like a yellow lab in your mind right now. That's where it is. In that is so yeah.
0: strange. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's just like I, like I can't imagine that. I can't picture that in my head. But I imagine you can't. Not imagine it. Like, it's it's like a part of you.
1: I actually, growing up, I thought that everybody could do that, like, naturally. And one day, I just remember in elementary school, I said something about it, like, oh, that music sounded like a gray cloud or something i said something really stupid <laughs> and my friends all looked at me like what are, what are you talking about world? yeah so i went home and talked to my parents about it and they didn't believe me really no they didn't believe me until i kind of um like sat them down and asked them to play me a song and then i kind of like took some colored pencils Incredible. and like, drew it but the um the other one that i have most people know it as ASMR, but I can feel sounds. There's a lot of ASMR videos on YouTube. It's kind of really popular and a lot of people can get their tingles. That's what it's called in the community is like, is that feeling that that massage feeling it's called tingles, but I've been getting those all my life and I get them in real life. So if the, the only stipulation of it is that it has to be otherwise completely silent. Whatever that trigger is, if it's not a completely silent environment, it will drive me insane.
0: It doesn't set it off.
1: No, it sets it off in the complete other way. Interesting. But if it is completely silent, then it completely puts me at ease. It's the weirdest thing.
0: Do you ever find it happening with noises that like you don't expect it to?
1: Like I said, it has to be in a completely quiet environment. So the times that it surprised me are things like like assemblies at school. If we'd have a guest speaker and the guest speaker had like a certain accent or they spoke in a certain cadence or rhythm or something, I would suddenly just feel like, oh, I am so here for this assembly. I am just <laughs> going to be here for a while. Thanks, guys.
0: Is it like... Like you said, it feels like a massage, Mm -hmm. right? Do different sounds feel differently?
1: More or less, I would just say that kind of... This is going to sound weird, but scratchier, bassier, deeper sounds resonate with me lower in my spine. Whereas kind of lighter sounds like tapping and um, people like smacking their lips or something or like whispering, that gives me the feeling higher up. So, it's
0: but it's always you. your it's always your back or like the back of your head?
1: It's like from from the top of my head, like the crown of your head to the base of my spine. So it literally just goes like kind of through your spinal cord and also your scalp.
0: what I would be incredibly interested to find out is chromesthesia is, it's rare, Mm -hmm. right? But it's not infinitely rare. There are other people with mm -hmm. the same condition. Do they see the same things?
1: Everybody's pretty much different. A lot of, I've definitely looked it up before, like obsessively to see like, Oh my God, what do other people with this have? Like, what do they do? And a lot of people describe it the same way is that of like, it just turning on and flowing. Um, but for the most part, people report... I've Some people report that they're able to, like, kind of almost visualize it like a... Like, you know, those piano visualizers? That they kind of just see it in, like, drops and, like, different instruments will follow, like, the same line. But that's not how it is for me. Uh, also, there's other forms of chronosthesia where people will... Um, associate sounds with certain letters or certain colors with certain letters. That's a different type of synesthesia. Chromesthesia, I think, just refers to sound and and sight. But anyway, I digress. There's a lot of different forms of it and different things happen for everybody with it. Um, But I will say that when I listen to a song And I have like gone on forums of other people who have this thing and they're like, oh, this song was mostly like this for me. And it had all these colors and all these shapes. Every single reply will be different. Every single one of them. Nobody really kind of sees things the same. It's very contextual. It's very like dependent on how your life has been, how you've grown up, the things that have influenced you. And it's especially interesting to me that those characteristics are what you end up visualizing and in reality like that's all it is is just like a a home visualizer of your of your life happenings to music
0: With this understanding of color that you have, that not a lot of other people do, how, like, what part of that made you the perfect person to write this thesis, to do this research that nobody's done? How does synesthesia affect the research you did?
1: So, I think that it definitely spurred me on to doing sensory marketing in the first place. Um, but i think more specifically i've just always been interested in is there a deeper meaning is there something deeper about color is there something deeper about the sounds that i feel that i maybe one day can discover for myself and i think that would be really awesome and that's definitely not the research that i've been doing and that I probably I probably won't do that research for a while, but it, it is a good start and it is my life school to do research on that.
0: thank you to McKinsey for kind of going off the uh, scheduled interview there um, and talking a little bit extra about something we hadn't necessarily planned or prepared to talk about. Something I did during the section, all of the music that was playing was actually handpicked by McKinsey. I wanted to have kind of audio references for what polyphonic sections in a song means. And so what I did was I sent her a, a bunch of, a bunch of music she listened through it and got back to me and told me what set off her chromesthesia most and what she saw. So the first song that played is called Alien Forest. At around 50 seconds into the song she heard red wide smooth bottom with blue circles drops and yellow orange waves. The second song that played was called Pay the Reaper by Darren Curtis. She said there was a lot going on. There was really tight, vertical, and shingly. There were a lot of deep oranges and bright reds and yellows. And the last song that you just heard is called Dreamwalking. She saw deep purple, blue waves with yellow and pink circles all over the place. And then about a minute of the song, there's some orange and green liquidy shapes that show up and they interact with the dark waves. That means nothing to me is a brand new podcast hosted by me, Trey Taylor. Audio editing is done on Audacity Suite 2.3.0, we're recorded on a Yeti blackout omnidirectional mic. All of our music credits for this episode can be found in the show notes, as well as the link to McKinsey's thesis, if you would like to read it. Special thanks go to McKinsey Bland and everyone who listened to this and the last episode pre-release to tell me all the points where I was accidentally yelling. We're still working on the formatting, length, and overall vibe of the show, so if you have any questions, comments, or you just want to let us know what you thought, please feel free to shoot me a message at contact at thatmeansnothing.com. It can also be found on all social media at that means 0 the number zero. Thanks for listening.
1: Okay, so this is Mackenzie, and I wanted to leave you all with a little bit of what I can hear, and what I feel from ASMR. Thank you guys for listening. i literally just stroking a pillow. <laughs>